This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Unspoken Agreements podcast. I am your host, Adam Esco. Before we get to the third and final part of Lisa Marie's journey, an amazing, amazing story, I'm going to share a little bit about myself for those of you who don't know me. I am a life coach and a business strategist, and I get to work with people who come to me saying they want to find whatever it is that they're passionate about and infuse that into the business that they want to create. And I feel like we're all here for a reason. We all have passions. And sometimes it just takes unlocking that and, and figuring out what your real vision is, what it is that you want to move towards every day, the natural life force that's inside of you, that energy, that enthusiasm that exists. And wake up every day and feel that, touch that. And we all have that. So those are, that's what I help people find and create in their lives so they can create their lives for themselves and have a business that is the way they design it and with which includes creating the financial freedom that they want. And this is something that speaks to you. I encourage you to reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. I also want to take a minute and thank Truth Work Media. Again, they are the production team behind this podcast. They do such an amazing job. Uh, I love working with them because they are so easy to connect with. Um, I trust them. And if you're someone that wants to get into podcasting, if you're solo, if you're in a small business, if you're in a big business, they serve all those uh, demographics. So uh, find them in the show notes if you want to reach them. Okay, now we're going to get to Lisa Marie, the final uh, part of this three-part series. And Lisa Marie is just amazing. She's such an inspiration to me and many, many people who have gone through something traumatic, in this case, very, very traumatic. And she continues to discuss how she navigated her life uh, through and after the murder attempt by her ex-husband and how she does that and holds an amazing amount of compassion for this man. So without further ado, please enjoy Lisa Marie. As I stood in his way at the top of the stairs and I said, no, you need to leave now. And there was something about that dynamic and I, it, I didn't yell it. I wasn't aggressive. I just was very stern. And there was something about that dynamic that triggered him and he had a full-on flashback in my um, my opinion because I saw the thousand-yard stare clicking. And the way that that looked was that his eyes, his vision kind of like retracted back into his head. Like it was very, very visual. I could see it. I watched it happen. And at that point, I believe that he didn't know who I was or where he was. I believe that he literally was in a flashback and I was a threat. And so he stepped up to my level and he picked me up um, and a trained military, um, frontline army, very strong and quite a bit larger than I was. And he started to shake me and he had never touched me before. And so I screamed out to my friend, if we can call her that, but I screamed out to her, she was in the bedroom and I said, call 911. 
And so then eventually I was fighting, right? So I'm trying to get him to let me go. I'm trying, I'm trying to push off of him. I'm trying to get loose. And then he put me, he, he got himself around so that he was behind me and he was trying to hook his arm under my chin. And so at that point, I'm biting, I'm scratching, I'm reaching behind me, I'm, you know, I'm kicking, I'm trying to do everything that I can. He finally succeeds in getting his arm under my chin and locking down. And then at that point, he pulled me backwards onto his stomach. So he fell down to the ground on his back, and I was on my back. And then he wrapped his legs around my legs. So it was the point at which he pulled me backwards that I thought I was going to die. I was quite sure at that point that that was the end. That was the last breath that I took. And so when I was growing up, my brother was, in in my opinion, physically abusive, although there's some some contention within my family, but there is full agreement that he was very cruel to me. My opinion, it was physical abuse. So I learned with him at a very young age that if I didn't respond to him, he would lose interest and give up. And it had seemed in that moment as I was going back, I had been fighting and fighting and scratching and trying to get away and that wasn't working. And the size and strength differential was just way, I was way at a disadvantage. So, and which was much less, my, my brother was three years older than me. So I was used to being outpowered. So I had this moment of clarity as I was going back that I needed to possum. I needed to play dead because that was the only way I was going to live through this. And so I used all of my power, which my body did not want to stop struggling, but I used all of my power to calm my body and make it go limp. It just everything, it took everything in me And then all of a sudden, it just happened. It just like went. It just left. My body just went limp. And he stayed on the ground for a couple more seconds. He released me, and then he rolled me off of him. So he did think that I had passed out. And I don't have full clarity of every second. I don't know if I became close to losing consciousness or not. I really don't know, you know, but I do know that I made that decision. I've got to stop fighting. Otherwise it's going to kill me. So, um, and I credit that at this point, actually, I think it saved my life. Um, so then he got up and go downstairs and he walked out the front door and just as he walked out the front door, the police were arriving because Megan or my friend had successfully called uh, the police and they had come. So then at that point, the detective and, uh, and some, some, they got him, they got my husband into the car and they came up and they were, then people were stationed with each of us, two women. And then the detective was looking around and asking questions and trying to get a picture for what had actually happened. Uh, I, th- I want to pause here for a second. Uh, I'm just. I want to describe what it is that I'm. I'm sensing it, and give everyone a, a minute to catch their breath. My my palms are very sweaty. Um, I could feel my heart beating pretty rapidly as you were telling that, and I want to take this moment to actually uh, express my gratitude to you and to acknowledge you for your bravery and your courage and your vulnerability in sharing that story with me. 
And I think this is a good moment to to take a second to really do that. And I really appreciate you sharing that because I don't know what that's like for you to actually retell that story and, and how often you are in position to do that so vividly. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm, like my heartbeat does increase a little bit. I think I have done an exceedingly large amount of personal work since it's happened. And I've been in and out of counseling, mostly in counseling for the last seven years, processing this and processing trauma that I didn't recognize was influencing my life at this point um, from way back in my childhood. Um, and so to tell the story at this point is... Well, I just I have a clear I have a clear understanding of why I'm doing it. Like I really, I want people to know. First of all, uh, strangulation is a common. It's actually a common occurrence in in abusive partnerships, and it, the reason why is that it's it's such an effective form of control because it is um, it is physically overpowering the person. It is psychologically and emotionally overpowering the person. And it also has a spiritual component that's difficult to define, but there's some kind of spiritual control that happens as a result of that action. And this is based on some research that I read um, from the Journal of Women's Psychology. Although it mostly happens to women, it also happens to men. So this is something that that crosses, again, just the same way that domestic violence crosses all boundaries. This also crosses boundaries that you wouldn't necessarily think in terms of the, the victims. And so it's, it's, you know, I have a clear idea why I'm telling the story. I, there's so many different components to what's happened that I know people can relate to and I know that they're going through now in the moment or that they went through it and they still don't know how to process through it and it can be done it's incredibly difficult i'm not going to i'm not going to lie <laughs> and say that it's easy but it's worth it and it can be done and i am absolutely available to help point people in the direction of the resources that I use. I am not a trained professional. I do plan to become a trained professional, but at this point, I just want to build awareness and I would love to share any resources that I have with people that can use them. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And when you were describing the mode of strangulation, I pictured that. I mean, I've wrestled with friends. I've watched MMA on TV and what I picture is someone using the sleeper hold method, right? Where you put your, your arm around the person's neck and, um, you know, make it sure that they, they can't get out. And, and that's what they say, you go to sleep because you become unconscious. So it's a very uh, controlling method. And it, it, for me, it's very triggering for someone that, you know, likes to be in control to think about that happening uh, to myself or anyone. So what's interesting when you share how prevalent strangulation is in society. And you had statistics to, to share with that as well. How common is that? Oh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I actually don't know the exact statistics, but I do know that they did quote that it's one out, out of every strangulations, 10 to one is women to men. Um, I don't know that they actually gave statistics in the article, and I'm happy to refer that to you, Adam, if you want to put some notes on it or something. But um, 
but yeah, I think in it just it's it was more of an article in terms of that it does happen, and and how incredibly difficult it is to overcome. Yeah. And then since I've been telling my story, I've encountered several people who have either been uh, strangled by a partner or strangled by a step parent or a parent, or I mean, like it really crosses a lot of boundaries. Uh, so. You know, and, and I mean, that's the thing that I can't believe, like the number of people that have told me things since I've been kind of fearlessly just telling this, this story, um, hoping to benefit people with it. Although when it, right after it happened, honestly, I was just doing it to get better because <laughs> it's yeah. like, that's one of the ways that you process through is to talk about it. But, um, but as I, as I started doing it intentionally and I started doing it with the intention of benefiting other people and letting people know they weren't alone because I know that they're, they're in my circle. They're in your circle. They like all of us are touched by these issues. Nobody gets away because even if, even if you are an individual that thankfully has not experienced domestic violence, you know, several people closely that have or are. And so it's just, it's a, it's a huge pandemic and it's worldwide and it's so destructive. I mean, it even has the recent, the recent um, research now shows that children that have a high perception of stress and endure really difficult um, social and psychological environment as children, their brains are actually changed in what's viewed to be a permanent way which makes their brain similar to that of a person that had a substance abuse problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's well known that addiction and domestic violence go hand in hand. Also, 80 to 90% of people that are abused, abuse Mm -hmm. or neglect. So there's either the, you know, the, and this is from uh, a, another article. And again, I can give you, I can give you references to these if people are interested in checking them out. Um, that's from the control, the CDC, Center of Disease Control. Um, and, and so people take, you know, they tend to take, if they don't process through and they don't heal, which when you're a child and it occurs to you, you don't have the opportunity, you don't have the resources to heal through this stuff or maybe even know that it's a problem. But as you become an adult, then people tend to take two different approaches, which is unless they do the work and they heal and they realize that they have to do that, um, which is to kind of go into a denial mode and just a, a neglect and step back and pretend that it's not happening or they actually become the abuser. Which are very interesting. You know, we got to this point in your life where it kind of seems like that's the entire story, right? The, the event happened, this, this very acute traumatic event happens, but really what progressed after that was very, very, very trying for you. And I want to spend some time shedding some light on that. First of all, in that moment when, before your ex-husband was walking down the stairs, were there any words exchanged? Did he see you? Did you see him? Were there any words exchanged that you remember or recall before he got into the police car? Well, when he got into the police car, I still was feigning that I was passed out. So I was still on the ground exactly as he left me. I didn't, I didn't, I was afraid that if I moved that I might still be considered a threat. And so, no. So the last contact and the last interaction that he had with me was uh, when he strangled me. 
And Megan's still in your place at that point, correct? Yeah, yes. And so the police came in, um, the detective uh, came and spoke to both of us briefly, but she was um, just still in the bed and she was crying and she was not really able to compose the sentence. And I was up and walking around and I was talking to people. And again, a history of, of um, uh, either cruelty or abuse, however you want to frame it, I guess. Um, history of that in my life, I have developed a very quick tendency towards dissociation, which means that when I come up against a life-threatening situation, I tend to click into a very logical uh, experience and my emotions disappear. So I become kind of data-like in, in, and I'm very effective in emergencies. And so that has come in handy in a lot of places in my life, but it's also, it has some, some real personal um, detrimental um, factors. And so it's one of the things that I'm working on healing um, is that tendency. But in that situation, I believe that it saved my life and then when I was talking to the detective, he was like, okay, so the wife, and I was like, the wife, why are you speaking in third person? And he said, well, she's the wife, right? And I said, no, 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 I'm the wife. I'm the one that was strangled. She's the one that I found in bed with him. And he was like, you're what? <laughs> He's like, you? Strang you? And I was like, yes, it was me. And he was like, I've never seen anything like this before. And he's been, he had been doing it for a living. <laughs> wow. Wow. And he also did mention, and this is another really important thing to understand yeah. and know about the dangers in these situations, is he also did mention that when they come in on the scene in a, in a situation where there's two people that have been found in bed together and the police are called, they generally expect that somebody at least one person in those three people will be dead. That is the expectation because that's typically what happens. And he said a lot of times it's the people that were in bed that are, that are killed. He said, but sometimes it is the, the third party. And, um, and so he was like, you know, I'm just glad you guys are all alive. Like that's what the detective told me. Wow. So, Okay, so then the next couple, so, so life doesn't just proceed as normal after this. Your husband is in jail, correct? Correct. You, this is a town, you said a town, not really a city. So it's a small town. What's life like for you in the days, weeks, months following that event? Oh my gosh. It was the worst level of emotional pain that I, I don't even know how to describe and I didn't think, honestly, that I could survive the emotional pain. And what I mean by that is not that I was tempted to give up, but I literally felt like it was physically going to kill me. And um, I took medical leave. I actually called my boss that day. I was in, again, data. I data clicked mode. into my data mode. Yeah. I called my boss after I got back. I went to the hospital I got examined. My friend got examined. Um, I was brought home by the detective and he looked around the apartment a little bit more and asked a few more questions. And then I was left alone in this apartment. 
<laughs> and I don't, I actually, I actually don't remember much after that point. Uh, I started to click into severe shock. So I was already in shock, but I started to click into severe shock. Um, I do know that my mom and my stepdad were not in town. And so I called them and I explained what happened when I was in the hospital and then they contacted other family members in town. So they, they, my family had arranged for someone to come and be at the, be at my house with me. Um, and so my sister-in-law, uh, was the person that came and she brought her baby and they just kind of hung out at the house with me. And I, I don't remember much. Um, but, I. I continued actually to function quite normally for a few days. And then all of a sudden I went into what I would describe as a semi-catatonic state. Mm. So I don't know if my body and mind decided that I was safe. And this was after my mom had returned. I was, I was staying then at their house. And so I don't know if like the level of overwhelm, like the data mode just kind of finally wore out. Mm. And then I just clicked into this state where I couldn't focus on anything. I didn't really, I could hear things. I could hear people talking, mm. but I didn't care that they were talking to me and I didn't care what they were talking about. And so this went on for quite some time. I don't know if it was days or I have no idea. My family would know much better. They were much more cognizant, but they were all there to watch it, sadly enough, because I know how hard it was on them. And then eventually I just got to the point where, and of course I was seeing doctors and I was doing all that stuff, which I also don't remember well. Um, and um, I, was on medic I, I was on medical leave for uh, several months, um, but I did, I did call my boss the day when I was in data mode right after the incident happened and said, yeah, so um, all this happened. And just so you know, because I actually worked with Megan at the time. And so I was like, just so you know, Megan's involved too. And so I don't know if she's going to be like affected by it. But this is how like, like logical and not emotional it was at the time. So I'll be there Monday though, I'm sure. I mean, I really need to make sure that I get back to work. I need to make sure that I keep a routine. I'm not going to let this affect me. <laughs> Dissociating from it, like just going into survival dissociation mode. Do you think that's what was going on? Yeah, I think my system just couldn't process. And then I don't think that consciously it really wasn't able to process uh, the level of loss and the level of shock, you know, because... Um, we were trying to have a family and, and, and from my perspective, um, the moment that he touched me, actually the moment that he picked me up and shook me, our marriage was over. And so I had already decided well before he was even arrested that our marriage was over. And so I literally woke up one day, was married to a man that I loved and thought things were going well and was trying to get pregnant and have a family. And then that night I went to sleep knowing that I was a divorcee, that I just had to file the paperwork. So it was just an extreme amount of loss in such a short period of time. And it, and then of course, the near-death experience, and then that topped off with the fact that it was him who I trusted with my life. And I apparently, you know, that was, not that it was an unwise decision, but what he was dealing with was so much more complicated than either one of us understood. And it was much more dangerous than we knew. And so it was an incredible amount to process. And, and throughout that, because you're 
you are in your catatonic state, you're dealing with incredible amount of trauma and loss, like you're saying. How was there any bandwidth for thinking about him? Was your mind going there at all? What's he going through? Are you, any of that or feelings of anger or whatever came with it? What was there any room for that? I, after I came out of the the stage where I just was kind of checked out, um, I had a hard time feeling any emotion for a while. And I found I'm very athletic and that's always been a really important part of my life. And so I decided to try to go for short runs. And I noticed that when I started to run, emotion came it just poured. So I would just start to cry. And at the time, that was a relief. And so that was one of the ways that I would do that every day for little short periods of time, just to get the emotions to start moving. And as they started to move and as they started to process more and more, um, I would I would say that I experienced every single possible human emotion that one can. I mean, I just think... I think I went through everything at different times and sometimes conflicting ones at the same time. Like I was still very much in love with him. I, I still couldn't imagine my life without him. I mean, I was, I was tormented by the fact that our relationship was over and I knew that I could not live in fear. I knew that I could not wake up every day and wonder if I was going to end up in the same situation. And, the, and when I was in the hospital, the local shelter sent a, an advocate. The police alerted them that there was a domestic violence case and they sent an advocate to sit with me in the hospital. And when things had kind of quieted down and it was just she and I, and she said, you know, I hope that this isn't like a really bad time to tell you this, but it's really, really important. And I really want you to listen. She said, the level of assault that's happened because he strangled you if you stay with him, you'll be dead within a year. That's what it's shown statistically because it increases, it it escalates. And so it's not going to stay the same. Nothing, nothing in life stays the same. And so, so I, in the hospital at data mode, look at her and I say, are you freaking nuts? Of course I'm getting divorced. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, but like, like for me and, and my, and my experience was like, you really have to tell people this, right? Yeah, yeah. But what I didn't understand then that I now have a better understanding is that all of those things that I had done to hold on to these little pieces of independence and to make sure that I had full choice of whether or not I stayed in the relationship or left, that was rare. And so I had the full capability and personal confidence that I had what I needed without the relationship in terms of money, in terms of job, in terms of support. You know, I had all those things. You didn't get to Most, a point where you became totally dependent on him. You didn't let yourself yeah. at that point. Exactly. And most victims are in that position and that is not something to you know, overlook or belittle. That is an extreme situation when you're depending on somebody for income yeah. and you don't have you know, social or family support. And this one person is caring for you in this one capacity and then harming you deeply in another. 
it, that is a very complicated and multi-layered situation. But one of the wonderful things about it is that, and also uh, when people leave, the relationship is is the most deadly because the the abuser is the most likely to escalate to the highest degree when the victim tries to leave. So when they leave, whether they're in the presence of the person or whether the person finds them, their life is often in danger. But as you know, these this these um, people that are in that situation, as they take those steps and they do find those resources and they do whatever they need to do in order to get out, and maybe they go back. But as they do that, each time they leave, they build resources and confidence that they they can build on. Mm -hmm. So it does become an actual process where they're like just a little bit at a time learning about resources, learning about support systems that they have, learning about opportunities for employment, getting all of those things in alignment bit by bit over time. And so it often takes eight to 10 attempts before somebody can actually leave an abusive relationship when they are dependent. So... What's it like for someone who's never experienced this, who really can't actually picture this, when you get to a point where you're in a deep state of depression, you're, you're bottoming out, how do you get yourself out of that? How do, what, what are the things that can start to actually open up a little bit of light, a, one door that you work your way out of that? Well, in the beginning for me, um, I lost, I lost hope and what I did, and again, I, not a professional, but what I did to get through was I, I looked for anything that made me feel something good that was productive, right? So I, I was clear. I knew I was at risk for addiction. I knew I was at risk for trying to escape. And so I was consciously looking for productive activities that would bring even a moment of relief or joy. And one of the things that had been a part of my life that was really, really important to me was dance. Mm. And so I started shaping all of my free time around dancing. And that's what I did. So I started doing Zumba I joined a dance group. I went Latin dancing. Of course, I had severe PTSD yeah. for a while, so I didn't do any of that for some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I started to get back out of the house, you know, after months of therapy and like that, and when I was in the home and I was, I was too hypervigilant to leave the home for, for a while, um, for months, um, I did the same thing. So I would go for those little runs because it brought a sense of relief to cry and I couldn't seem to cry otherwise. I played the guitar every day because for some reason it brought me joy, just the act of doing it. Um, and, and that was not something that I knew how to do. I was just learning how to do it. And I actually am not doing it now. But at that time, there was just something about it. So I looked, I did collaging because I liked the way that I got joy out of like a finished collage and it was a way for me to express myself artistically. So I was just really looking for anything that would bring in, um, yeah, any sort of relief or, or, or joy for life. And it was fleeting and it was difficult and I cried every day and I begged on my knees on many occasions to whatever power, you know, yeah. um, God, universe, source, that I 
was going to get through it. And, um, and I, I just think it's just taking it for me, it was taking it day by day. And I relied heavily on my doctors and, um, I, on the patience and love of my friends to listen to me. And, you know, it's just, there's just no, I don't think there's any easy way through it, but there is a way through it. The two questions that came to mind as you were sharing how you're starting to get push yourself really back into whatever semblance of a life is possible, even though you took a leave from work. The one thing I was curious about is, are your friends talking about it with you? Or are they looking to you to lead? And then what are people, are you aware of what people in the town are saying, on the periphery are saying? How much of that went into your world, went into your into your mind? Oh my goodness. So, um. I had a very, very small circle of friends that I invited over to the house to come see me for tea or, or go for a walk or like that um, around, around my really small, safe perimeter. Um, and so those people I confided in deeply and those people had the emotional maturity to deal with that and work with that. And so... I basically kind of chose wisely around, I had those people in my life and I chose wisely around who those people would be. Although honestly, some of them came, came, I, I came into contact with them because someone else recommended you should call this person. Even though we were friends, I had no idea that I could rely on them that way. And then I did, I just picked up the phone and said, Hey, do you want to come over and have tea? Because, you know, Michael said that I should just hang out with you who was, Michael was one of my best friends. And sure enough, my, my dear friend, Natalie started coming over regularly and she was, he was right. She was the perfect person, you know? So like this kind of listening to those little cues that you get and like those people are there, they exist, but they are the minority. And the, the majority of my experience was um, that people didn't know how to respond and people had a hard time looking me in the eye and um, especially when I returned to work, um, I went back to the same job and the tourism season was over. So it was off season. So we were just in planning mode. So there was very low stress, very, it was just 10 of us in the office. Mm. And I, um, you know, but that, those 10 people, like many of them had a difficult time, like even just interacting with me in a normal way. And so it was really, really difficult. Like I had to force my body to walk in. Um, But then it became normal and then people realized that I was okay. And I think it's mostly that people just feel, feel fear for you. You know, they feel the pain for you and they just don't know how to respond. So that was a big deal. And then in, in the, this town, when there's any kind of arrest, there's a little write-up in the paper. Mm. And my name was left out of it, but my husband's name was was put in there as the person that was arrested. And it highlighted everything that happened. And that's, you know, it's a small community. So everybody had the details that were included in that write-up, which, by the way, were not very accurate from my perspective. Mm. So it also gave a skewed view of it. And I would say it definitely was geared towards villainizing my now ex-husband for what he did, um, which was very disappointing to me. It was not an objective account. It was, it definitely had an agenda. So there was that too. There was that component as well. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I've heard you say that, and we've been speaking for over two hours now. And one thing that is so evident in the way you share your story, even with mentioning that your ex-husband was villainized, is the amount of compassion that you have for him now being six, seven years removed is so evident. Um, Maybe there's a piece of that that also has compassion for all of our military who returns from, you know, dangerous types of deployments with PTSD and then are asked to get into society and be just functional members of society. But Every time I've spoken with you and just listened to you, including this podcast, it's so it's so amazing how much compassion you have now for him. And I'm curious to learn more about how and when that developed. How were you able to get to that place? And when, was that there you know, in the first year, in the first couple months after the, the event? I would say... I did not have the capacity to be compassionate shortly after the event. I would say I cared about him as a human being, but I was so hurt and I was filled with so much rage, even though I still felt the love that I had. I was angry at the love. I was really, um, I was in a very difficult state of mind and and so, um, no, it definitely was not. I mean, like, I, I think that I have always been a little bit unusual because even as a child, um, my mom used to comment on how I seemed to care for everyone and everything, every animal, everything. And, um, and I, so I've always had this kind of sense of like, even if I didn't like, you know, a person or something that they did or thought that it was perhaps even wrong in terms of harmfulness or whatever. But I still wondered about their story and I still wondered about who they were and what would cause them to do that. This Mm -hmm. goes all the way back to me asking really early questions when I was young. And so I always realized that, you know, it's not just the cover of the book. And some people believe that there's such a thing as pure evil. And in my, in my belief, um, I think that, there's most of the things that are done that are destructive are from confusion. I think that a person is really internally and spiritually very confused. And a lot of times there's a lot of of hurt and they may not even be aware of the pain. It's that deep. And so I, I really try to look at them from that perspective and respect the the fact that they're a being, right? Yeah. Um, the compassion, like the, the specific compassion for my ex, like to be able to step into it fully and feel that instead of all of the other things, it just came with time. I just, I kept leaning in. I knew I didn't want to live angry and I knew I wanted to love and trust again. And I knew that that was going to be difficult. And I basically am willing to do whatever it takes to do that. And so I'm still, like I said, I'm, 
currently in counseling, I've taken small breaks over the last seven years when it just seemed like, wow, everything's going well. You don't really have any targets that we're working on right now. But then sure enough, something would come up and I would say, ah, there's another one. And I'd go back in. And then I've consi- I've consistently continued personal studies. And I do a morning meditation practice where I, where I really focus on gratitude and connection. And that for me has been a revolutionary um, practice. And it's something that I started this particular style of meditation. I started um, just over a year ago and I've had more uh, forward leaps in the last year than in all of the seven years of work that I've been doing. So there's something to, and it's literally, I'm I'm, I'm focusing on gratitude and opening my heart is like, like a lot of the center of, of this practice. And I think that it's a lifesaver. I think that practicing gratitude and practicing trusting and being open, even when, and especially when you're in a really safe environment, mm. um, is crucial. Yeah, that's what I'm, we, I would love to do another podcast and just riff on, you know, practice of gratitude, meditation, Joe Dispenza. I know you and I are fans of him. Yeah. But one thing that really, really has stuck to me, something that I've heard you say is how part of your mission is to understand, in your words, how I cause the circumstances in my life. And then you're trying to really find ways to transcend it. Now, someone that may listen to the story that you told about your past may say, okay, wait a minute. Like, you're the victim here. Like he did this to you. Can you share more about why you choose to take a different approach and put so much personal responsibility on yourself? Yeah. And that came in stages. So like I always intellectually believed that, that, that the course of my life had happened and I came to the place where I did in that marriage even because the marriage is always two ways. It's a, it's a a relationship you're relating with somebody else. So you're contributing and receiving to an equal extent with the other in terms of um, influences in how things turn out and go and, and like that. And so there's never like even, and I, and again, I mean, I, I don't think that yo that my ex was having a an affair on a regular basis. I think that it was a drunken kind of half-witted um in terms of awareness. Like he wasn't very aware at that point he was so drunk mistake, but I don't know that. I I I don't have any I don't have any way to know if there was anything more complicated than that going on. Um but either way for me if that was occurring, like I feel like I understand the influences in our relationship that were contributing to that being a possibility, you know? So I, I think that, I think that um, there's that component in terms of my belief system. And then I made a decision really early on. I remember being on one of my walks when I was still um, in severe shock and severe pain. And I decided that, that there must be a higher purpose to this experience and that I must have been brought to it for a reason. And that, you know, I was drawn to him. It was not a happenstance that I, that I chose him. And so 
even if you were to consider me a victim in the attack itself, which I can definitely agree with that. I, I was overpowered and I couldn't control the situation, but I still was drawn to him, right? It, of all of the people that I could have been. And so I, I, the, the reason why, and I didn't see any higher purpose at the time, but the reason why I decided to trust that there was a higher purpose and this was a very conscious decision was because it was the only way that I was going to have any ability to change it mm-hmm. and to, to grow through it and to use it to do something beneficial. And so I was like, I, even if it just gives me hope, then that's useful. So yeah. I'm going to do that. Thank you. And, and let me clarify by responsibility the way I'm using that word, because uh, I don't want this to be confusing, does not have anything to do with deserving, but it had to do more with what I thought you were just mentioning there, how you choose to um, use that past event, uh, put yourself in a, po- a position where you actually use the words, I chose to be gravitated towards him. There was a reason for that. And how you're using that to fuel your life now. That's what I meant. Like the victim uh, victim circumstance happened, but the way you're using this event and the ability of you sharing this story with us shows that you are choosing to use this as a place to move not only your life, but other lives and improve them and, and make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, and the thing <clears throat> to realize is that most of what we do is driven by our subconscious. Like it's not within our conscious awareness. And so so even like even like all of the trauma background that I had and everything that I was working with or not even aware to work with at the time, mm-hmm. that was all stepping stones that led me to this particular relationship. And um and so it was an it was a wake up call to me to realize that okay there's a lot going on under the surface here that I have no I have no idea is happening and it's driving me in all of these different ways with these different decisions and these different circumstances and choices and I I can and will find out what's going on under the cover there and kind of start digging it up. And let me tell you, that's what, that's where the work is. And it is often no fun, (laughs) (laughs) but it is, it is the key to freedom because as you start to get that gunk out, right. And you know what I'm talking about, then it, it 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 Hard it allows work. something else to step in in its place, and especially if there's a conscious vision and a conscious purpose that's yeah. for something of a higher good. It's really, yeah. yeah. Here's here's where I think I'd like to end uh, before I go into a long long thank you. So I'm curious, you know, today you've been so vulnerable, so authentic, so real. And you shared, obviously, so much about your one personal relationship with your ex-husband. As you move forward, how do you learn to trust again? Like, How can you be vulnerable in your personal relationships 
if you're trying to to seek out a healthy relationship, what's that like for you to to try to do that? Well, <laughs> that has been a very interesting process, but I do have, I believe, I I do think that I have made some significant um, steps forward recently, and and it's actually very very. It's, it's, it's steps anyone can take. It's very, very palpable. I think education and awareness in terms of what a healthy relationship is and what an abusive or toxic relationship is, I think that's the first place to start. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the things that, one of the gifts that I've received um, from following David Nagel because his education and his level of awareness and the way that he taught to the, spoke to those topics mm-hmm was so revolutionary for me in realizing, and that's what I was talking about, all these things that were happening in my home that I didn't think much of and come to find out that that they were really affecting me in a fundamental and subconscious way that then carried through the rest of my life. So then once I was able to identify, okay, well, sure, I'm going to work on those wounds and that trauma, but also now I know what I'm looking for. Now I know what a healthy relationship looks like and what what it is that I want to create. So then I put conscious energy into imagining what that would feel like in my meditations Mm -hmm. to be in a relationship that matches that description and that um, level of support and acceptance and understanding and love. And then I also uh, just uh, uh, about six months ago um, decided to take a chance and meet some people online and it's difficult to meet people in, in such a small community with like, you know, when you have a lot of interests. It's, so online is a great way to do that here. And I interrogated them. I mean, <laughs> I, was like, I did. I, you know, and the questions were everything from like, tell me about your history to, well, what do you think about jealousy? How do you feel about jealousy? How do you envision the roles in in marriage? Do you want to get married? And if you do, how do you envision the roles of yourself and your partner? Like, do you envision your wife being home with the kids or do you envision two independent entities, you know, like that? And so I really, really like, like took very uh, specific and like logical steps. And so then I, I met this man and he's really wonderful. And we're at the beginning stages of relationship, but we feel there's a lot of potential. And I remember that it was long after we met and I, I, I interrogated him for about three weeks <laughs> and he knew, he was like, holy cow, this is a lot of questions. He's like, I'm happy to answer any of them, but you're really asking a lot of questions. I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> you know? And I'm totally unapologetic. You got a problem with it? That's okay. We can not hang out. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but, uh, but one of the things that ended up happening was we were having a conversation um, um, months into dating or something. And he said, you know, I've never understood why people think that it makes sense to need another person. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wait, can you say that again? Like, let's have a conversation about this. Because I hadn't even broached that subject with him, but it was showing up. So so the common values and like the the, the common vision for what a relationship was yeah. was showing up in all of these different ways and it continues to with him. And so, um, and I honestly, truly believe, and part of it is through this experience with this person, but that um, you, you can't learn to trust until you are 
choosing people who are trustworthy to mm-hmm. be around. Wow. Because if you are allowing toxic people in your life, then the world is always going to show up as a place where you can't trust people. So it really, and I did exactly that. I eliminated all of the relationships that I considered to have toxic components. And I didn't, don't have anything against the people. I understand they're all walking their own story and they all have their own challenges and like that. But just as a choice for me, I was like, okay, well, that's one of the symptoms of toxicity. I'm not choosing that. I am going to just step away from that relationship compassionately and spend more time alone. Setting a a healthy boundary for yourself. Was that what you'd call it? Yeah, well, and it, I mean, maybe they weren't even necessarily being toxic toward me particularly, but I was noticing that they were toxic towards other people. And so then I was realizing that they weren't someone I was ultimately going to be able to trust because right. those behaviors, even if they weren't showing up for me yet, yeah. were going to be present in that person unless they do healing and they do work. So I was really like, being strategic about who I was choosing to let into my circle. And I have very, very few people right now that I'm spending time with and that's okay. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm an extrovert and it's very difficult, (laughs) but but I'm so much happier. I'm, it's made such a huge difference. Thank you so much. I, I am just, you talked about the word gratitude in your practice and I am sitting here with just an immense amount of gratitude for you, for the connection that we made several months ago, for the conversations we continue to have, and for this conversation especially. Uh, I'm just so incredibly moved, Lisa Marie. Uh, I'm so incredible. I'm getting a little emotional here. I'm so incredibly moved by you and your willingness to to be vulnerable to have such amazing courage to be able to share your story with such uh so eloquently articulated uh words throughout some of what could be very difficult memories to bring up and that's a testament to you and your bravery and how much work you've done on yourself and i'm just incredibly excited to see what's next for you and anyone that's around you, honestly, because you are, you're a force and it, it's going to be, it's going to be a sight to see your life is just getting going. And uh, yeah, just so, so grateful. Thank you so much, Adam. And this has been just, I'm just so thrilled to have a platform to be able to share on a more public level to reach more people. And I, wholly invite people. I know I only have an email right now, but I wholly invite people to reach out to me and ask me questions or just share a story or whatever. I would love to connect. That's my whole intention and purpose is to allow us as those that have, and most of us in life have had really difficult experiences and to know that we're not alone in them and that we're all connected. So I just really invite that. And I, and Adam, I just um, thank you for providing such a, a, a loving, compassionate and powerful space to share. You are very talented at that. This has been so much fun. So Really have enjoyed the time. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so grateful to thank you. We will definitely share your email on the show notes. And Lisa Marie, I just look forward to our next conversations and 
seeing you in the future in a few months. We'll be seeing each other in a few months too. So I know that's yeah. so great. I'm, I'm so excited about that. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a good one. Take care. You too. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If something resonated with you and you'd like to share it, please email me at adam at escocoaching.com or send me a message on social media. 